Uh, my fourth lecture of this series is about a collaborative play by William Rowley, Thomas Decker, John Ford, and as the 1658 title page puts it, etc., The Witch of Edmonton. So this is a play partly based on a true story, if that's to say we take the contemporaneous account of an elderly woman who is executed for witchcraft as a true story, but it takes a distinctly sceptical view on the causes and the consequences of witchcraft. And that's kind of what I want to try and talk about today, I think. Elizabeth Sawyer, <coughs> Elizabeth Sawyer, who is the eponymous witch, is presented as the intersection between pressures that are as much social as they are demonic. The authors of The Witch of Edmonton suggest that the community needs a witch and that Elizabeth Sawyer is in part at least coerced into performing the role of witch. So I want to use this striking play to talk about performance, about genre, and a little bit about collaboration. So I'm going to review the plot of this play first. Um, and somebody emailed me this week about where to find <coughs> plot summaries. So the best place... Uh, is Martin Wiggins' uh, catalogue of uh, British drama. It's called British Drama, 1533 to 1642. It's a big, multi-volume work that's coming out right now. Uh, it will be in libraries, um, possibly not in college ones, but certainly in the Bodleian. So that's the most reliable place uh, to go for plot summaries. Uh, and Wiggins is good on what you might want to read next or what's connected with the, with the play that you're interested in. So the plot of the play, which is called on, the, on its quarto edition a tragicomedy, The Witch of Edmonton opens with what I think is really its main plot. It concerns a man called Frank Thorny, who is forced into a bigamous marriage. He has married the pregnant Winifred as the play opens. In fact, Winifred's, um, the father of Winifred's child is uh, their master, or her master, Sir Arthur. <laughs> But he's married, Frank has married Winifred in secret at the beginning of the play. But then we hear that the Thorny family is in financial trouble. The only way their land will be saved from being sold off is if Frank marries Susan Carter and gets her dowry. So Frank denies that he's already married and he marries Susan as well. Trapped in this intolerable situation, he attempts to run away with Winifred She's dressed, although I think slightly half-heartedly in the play. She's dressed as a man, of course. He attempts to run away with her. Um, but Susan, his other wife, uh, is very clingy and doesn't want him to go. An encounter with the Witch of Edmonton's satanic dog. We're going to talk more about the dog uh, in a minute. Uh, the Witch of Edmonton's satanic dog rouses murderous thoughts in Frank. He stabs his wife, Susan, to death. With the dog's help, he wounds himself so as to create a cover story blaming some other characters for Susan's murder. He's visited by her ghost, he confesses to Winifred, and the bloody knife that incriminates him is found by Susan's sister. Frank is arrested and eventually he's hanged for the murder of Susan. So that's the first plot, the bigamous marriage. Frank's two wives, Winifred and Susan, uh, Susan's murder and Frank's uh, punishment. The second plot concerns the old woman, Elizabeth Sawyer, Mother Sawyer, who 
uh, falls into or goes willingly into magic, demonic magic, to get revenge on her abusive neighbours. The devil appears to her in the form of a black dog and induces her to give away her soul in return for his services. Mother Sawyer gets involved in um, actually quite a light-hearted plot strand. Young Cuddy Banks wants to get married and wants a love potion. Uh, and the dog is sent uh, to Cuddy, where there's a sort of comic sequence which is a lot to do with Morris dancing, ducking in a pond. Uh, the Morris dancers uh, have a magical fiddle. I mean, a violin by that, rather than a supercharged... Uh, supernatural encounter. So they have a, there's a magical fiddle. Mother Sawyer is blamed for an outbreak of cattle blight and for a thatched roof going on fire, and she's accused by the local women of sexual misconduct. She protests her innocence when she's questioned by justice, and she calls attention instead to abuses committed by all kinds of other people. We'll come back to that in a minute. Once she's alone, though, she suckles the dog uh, with her blood and makes more mischief. One of the villagers runs mad and kills herself. It's not quite clear what that's to do with Mother Sawyer, but it's sort of connected to her. And uh, Elizabeth Sawyer is arrested. While she's in prison, the dog comes to visit her. He's now white rather than black. He tells her that she's damned and will get no help, and she too is hanged. Uh, right at the end of the play, Sir Arthur is ordered to pay restitution to Winifred for her pregnancy. Okay, so there are two initial points I want to try and pull out from that plot summary. The first one relates to the question of gender. Witchcraft in 16th century England was, as many historians have pointed out, an almost exclusively female pursuit, whereas witch trials in other northern European countries identified a fairly high proportion of male witches. In England, to be a witch was to be female, and there was always the slight possibility of vice versa. So it might seem natural to see gender as one of the plays, uh, one of the issues that the play is dealing with. Now that's absolutely true in a literal sense, but not in the way it tends to be used in literary studies, where gender tends to get reduced to women, as if men did not have a gender. The plot summary I've given, I hope, shows that there are two parallel foci for our interest in the play, one male, one female, Frank and Mother Sawyer. Less fully developed, perhaps, as a third, uh, Winifred, although she's a more shadowy figure, I think. So this is not a play simply about women or their representation, but something more about power. Gender, of course, is uh, an important element of power. Sir Arthur has power to behave in a particular way that Frank Thorny doesn't. So to be a man in, uh, of a certain social status is also to be subject to uh, the wishes and the control of other people, just as to be a woman. Social status is at least as important as sex, perhaps more important than sex, in governing characters' choices and fates here. It might be interesting to think whether, uh, to an extent, that's always the case in early modern literature, that social status is a more important variable in terms of humans' ability to uh, act freely than is sex. So Frank and Elizabeth Sawyer each have their choices effectively circumscribed by social pressure. 
Frank's second bigamous marriage is pushed on him by loyalty to his family, uh, not by lust for another wife, not by um, uh, a disregard for Winifred, not by any of the, for any of the sort of the reasons that we might imagine, but because his family need the money that Susan Carter offers. In the same way, Mother Sawyer's witchcraft answers and fulfills the abuse of the community who are already calling her a witch right at the start of the play. And each of them, each, each, both Frank and Mother Sawyer, are encouraged by that compelling demonic dog. The interplay of these two plots and the role of the supernatural in both of them, I think, is what's really challenging about this play. In addition to its own self-designation as a tragic comedy, we can see, of course, that The Witch of Edmonton has a number of generic affiliations. It's in part a domestic tragedy, that true crime fascination of the late Elizabethan and Jacobean stage that includes plays like A Yorkshire Tragedy and Arden of Faversham. These are plays which have long been seen to be, in some way, realistic responses to social pressures and social contexts for the middling sort, particularly for women in the early modern period. So domestic tragedy has got a strong, strongly realist uh, kind of critical tradition around it. Uh, it might be that these are less realist plays than we've wanted to imagine, but the true crime designation has given them, and, and a lot of uh, sort of domestic detail, uh, props, the sense of the household, that's given them all uh, a, a sort of a kind of realistic uh, appearance. So, which of Edmonton is partly domestic, tra domestic tragedy. It's also part reportage. It dramatises a pamphlet account of Elizabeth Sawyer's trial, written by Henry Goodcole, the visitor of Newgate Prison, which was published shortly after Sawyer's execution as a witch at Tyburn in 1621. And looking at this pamphlet uh, in relation to the play, I'm not going to do that uh, much in this lecture, but it is, it's an interesting thing to do in terms of genre and ideology, a good way to think about how true stories work on the early modern stage. And it's also quite interesting to identify the, the, the apparently more realistic parallel plot, Frank Thorny and his bigamous marriage, has no known source. So we've got a kind of true story for the kind of unbelievably supernatural bit and no apparent true story for the more mundane uh, human bit. So if Witch of Edmonton is part domestic tragedy and part reportage, it is also deeply theatrical. It draws on the coordinates for the representation of stage witches already established in the Jacobean back catalogue of plays like Macbeth and Middleton's The Witch. Diane Perkins is great on these in her book The Witch in History. And it also draws on that great Ursine of demonic possession that we've already talked about this term, Dr Faustus. Although it's worth pointing out, I think, that in none of these plays do we see the witch in the process of becoming a witch. We don't ever see the turn to witchcraft in any other play. There's still a sense, perhaps, that both audience and Elizabeth Sawyer and uh, the citizens of Edmonton all know the script of witchcraft from these previous representations. They know how witches look and they know how witches should behave. There's an already literary sense of the representation of witchcraft pressing in self-consciously on this play. Witches, particularly for Londoners, are characters from theatre rather than from life. 
so that review of The Witch of Edmonton's generic hybridity is all to say this is probably not a play best served by thinking exclusively about its presentation of the witch or of women more generally. I feel as if the witch uh, comes to be a kind of diversionary tactic almost, uh, drawing us away from what might be most interesting. This is a play preoccupied with the intersection between individual responsibility and social pressures, and it makes it clear that Frank and Mother Sawyer are, vo- are both forced into their behaviour by the pressures of social expectation. <coughs> Frank finds himself the victim of a situation in which he can't really do the right thing. He has to abandon either Winifred, his secret wife, or his father's hopes. Similarly, Sawyer's choices are to be a witch or simply to be called a witch. Not really much of a choice at all. So by putting a story about forced or unwilling marriage, a common narrative, uh, theatrical narrative in this period, in both comedy and tragedy, putting that story... Uh, with one about witchcraft. The play sets up a dialectic in which social forces are crucial in producing the spectacle of the witch. The play, the play investigates, I think, um, the question of inevitability and moments of choice with an unflinching focus. That's one of the things the dog does. You feel as if the dog comes on stage, as I'm going to talk about, at a time when characters have a choice. Uh, and that the, the, the emergence of the dog signals that choice. So we could say that in some ways this is a play about the question of agency, who or what makes the things that happen, happen. The second thing I want to just pull out right at, right at the start from my initial plot summary is one about focus. Elizabeth Sawyer is the titular centre of the play, but not its dramatic one. Reviewers of a recent revival at the Royal Shakespeare Company in Stratford were united in wanting to see more of its celebrity star, Dame Eileen Atkins. I'd love to have seen more of Atkins, wrote Dominic Cavendish in an indicative review in The Telegraph. Stooped and shuffling, vulnerable and sinister with wild grey hair, she's withering in her looks and drolly entertaining in her curses, delivered in a moaning, cockney-meat, rustic accent. What all the reviews, it's really easy to Google them, what they all suggest is that, firstly, there was not enough of the play's main character. They had been sold a pup in some way, um, if you think that Elizabeth Sawyer is the main character. And secondly, that this mistake or omission, um, that the relative absence of Elizabeth Sawyer from the play uh, was a a feature or or an error caused by collaborative writing. All the reviews felt that it must have been the combination of writers, Decker, Rowley, Ford, and etc., which meant that there was insufficient coordination about the role of its central figure. So Elizabeth Sawyer was somehow um, the play's great central figure who fell through the cracks between the writers. So I want to pause here just for a minute to talk briefly about dramatic collaboration in this period. I'm trying, as you know, in these lectures on single texts to take the opportunity to digress into some more general or historical questions and material. And here, today, I'm going to try and talk about collaboration. Everything we know about early modern theatre practices suggests that a large majority of the plays that were produced in this period were by more than one playwright. A large majority were by more than one playwright. There were clearly numerous different operative models of writerly collaboration. We saw, for example, in the case of Dr Faustus, 
that two playwrights were employed more than a decade after Marlowe first wrote the play to write additional material for it, perhaps the so-called B-text. This is something we might call asynchronous collaboration, and it explains much recent work establishing, for example, Macbeth and Measure for Measure as Middleton adaptations of now-lost Shakespeare originals. We know that sometimes teams of writers were employed right from the start of the writing process to work on a particular commission. There are writers who only seem to work in these collaborative arrangements. And there are also writers we know about from the account books of the theatre impresario Philip Henslow, who worked extensively on playwriting, particularly on the activity of script doctoring we now call play patching, but whose names never appeared in print. Okay, so if we just thought about print drama, these people would never have existed. Henry Chettel is a great example. Henry Chettel. His name is associated with more than 30 plays in Henslow's diary, but he never gets his name on a single one in print. The writer Robert Dayborn was late delivering a play and so subcontracted an act to another writer. Other playwrights seem to have divided plays between them according to different plot strands. The Changeling by Middleton and Rowley might be a good example of this. Or sometimes a writer might have developed a plot outline which then another writer or writers fleshed out with characters and speeches. There are, that's to say, lots of different models of collaboration, even setting aside the obvious methodological point that theatre, in combining the efforts of writers, actors, musicians and audiences, is always a collaborative art in the way that, say, lyric poetry need not be. So theatre is intrinsically a matter of teamwork, and it's clear that in the early modern period that team extended to the collaborative contribution of playwrights. But if there are lots of models of collaboration, there is a real critical shortage on how to appreciate them. When critics cite collaboration, it's either to give it as the reason why the play is no good, or as a justification to try to work out which bits were written by which writer. Thus, much of the evidence for collaboration is based on or assumes that it has failed. Much work has been done to find out, for example, where it seems that different writers write in different ways, uh, use different registers, have different preconceptions about the way the play is working. So critics have been keenest when approaching collaborative work to disaggregate it and to apportion its different parts to the different writers. That's to say, our way of reading collaborative drama is profoundly anti-collaborative. Foucault wrote in his famous essay, What is an Author?, that we so need to ascribe an author to a text that we tolerate anonymity, the, the condition of not knowing who wrote something, we tolerate anonymity only as an enigma to be solved. We might develop Foucault's uh, um, assertion here to say that we seem to tolerate collaboration only as a knot to be untied, only as a joint enterprise to be realigned along distinct, singular, authorial contributions. But that, of course, seems to work against the impulse of co-creation that was behind collaboration in the first place, 
And also perhaps to deny something that we probably take for granted in the few modern instances of collaborative writing we have, TV drama might be one, comedy writing might be another, where we tend to assume that the whole is more than the sum of the two parts, that a writing partnership is more than just two people writing together. It creates a new creative um, uh, uh, kind of entity. And basically, it can't really be the case that in the early modern theatre, which was one of the most commercially and artistically vital and successful entertainment industries ever, that its most common writing practice, collaboration, was always associated with inconsistent, broken-backed, easily disaggregated or otherwise unsatisfactory products. That just really doesn't make sense. What I mean is, if collaborative plays were always crap, surely the theatre would have generated a different method of developing plays. So perhaps then, it's our own post-romantic stress on the individual author as the locus of genius, and perhaps too the inheritance of the new critic's stress on unity uh, and what the well-wrought urn, Brooks's uh, famous manifesto for our period called The Literary Works Pattern of Resolutions, Balances and Harmonisations. A pattern of resolutions, balances and harmonisations. You're probably more likely to feel that you find those uh, if you think there is a single creative uh, mind behind the work. I think these are critical paradigms that make us suspicious of collaborative work and likely to attribute discontinuities in collaborative work to the practical problems of multiple authorship. Now, there are inconsistencies and discontinuities in The Witch of Edmonton, to be sure. Maybe the depiction of Mother Sawyer is indeed one of them, as the reviewers of that RSC production so rut routinely asserted. But what I think I want to try and suggest is that these fault lines are less interestingly explained away as the inevitably distinct personal predilections of the writers Ford, Decker, Rowley, and etc. Rather, we might see these discontinuities as a sign of a broader cultural uncertainty, a kind of fracture line, an imaginative impasse, which di directs us to these points not as points of failure, but as points of abiding cultural and thus literary interest. Ideological incoherence, that's to say, is something on which we should be specifically focusing. It's revelatory of the effort that goes into literary production, a place where the cracks show. Let's try and think a bit more about that issue of incoherence with one particular element of the Witch of Edmonton. Elizabeth Sawyer, like all convincing witches, has a pet familiar. It's interesting that subsequent witch iconography has, dis has tended to identify witches as cat people, uh, but Elizabeth Sawyer is a dog person. Um, her talking dog appears with her, but it also operates independently of her. Uh, the dog uh, speaks in the play, and therefore, I think, must have been performed by a human actor. It is hard to see how an actor playing the role of a dog could be taken absolutely seriously. It's part of this play's unsettlingly uneven tone. There are dogs in drama uh, before um, dog in Witch of Edmonton, but they don't speak. Um, and I'm assuming there wasn't a preternaturally talented dog among the ranks of Prince Charles's men when they performed in 1621. But it's deeply unusual on the early modern stage to see a human actor acting the part of an animal. Hence all the discussion, perhaps, about that stage direction, exit pursued by a bear in Winter's Tale a decade or so earlier. 
So the dog's presence in this play is already rather destabilising. And in modern performances, it tends, of course, to steal all the scenes from the human characters uh, that an actor playing a dog in some ways is bound to, uh, is bound to be a favourite. But questions about the dog's role focus the issue of formal or thematic or characterological discontinuity features, as we've seen, often attributed to multiple authorship, it tends to focus those discontinuities more closely around questions about possession, witchcraft, the sources of, of social problems, and of human agency. The dog, as we'll see, is a troublingly inconsistent figure in this play, and one whose inconsistency speaks to big questions about interiority, about agency, and about responsibility. The woodcut on the belated print publication of the play, uh, the play is performed in 1621 when its witchcraft plot is highly topical, but it's not <laughs> printed for some reason until 1658. It must be doing some quite different cultural work when it's printed, but we perhaps don't have time to think about that now. But the woodcut presents a likeable, alert-looking, dark-coloured dog with floppy ears and a pricked tail, figured with the speech balloon, Ho, have I, have I found thee cursing? That's to say, the only thing that looks weird or demonic about the dog is that it is speaking. The illustration is not, obviously, a demon in the guise of a dog, so there's no pointy ears or uh, um, hooves or you know, tail or any of the iconography of uh, devils that we might expect, and nor is it an actor playing the part of a dog. And the question of whether it's a real dog or could ever be taken as a real dog uh, it keeps recurring. At one point in the play, young Cuddy Banks, who's a sort of rather nicer member of the village community who asks for the witch's help for his love potion, he describes the dog in deeply animal terms. Didst ever see him? asks his father. See him? Yes, and given him a bone to gnaw 20 times, says Cuddy. Cuddy's description of normal human and dog interactions complicates what we've seen on stage since he seems to be describing a regular dog. But at other points, that dog is more clearly a sinister prompter representative, or at least accompaniment, to evil. Questions about the dog echo and preempt similar questions about Elizabeth Sawyer herself. Is the dog a devil in the shape of a dog, or a dog co-opted by the devil? Does he have agency, or is he a representation of a more general exterior force? When Frank is troubled by Susan, who won't let him go off, uh, understandably won't let him go off with Winifred, the devil dog rubs him. The stage direction is a very, very clear verb, rubs him. Rather a queasy verb in, the, in that stage direction, in that three, scene three. It prompts and shapes his inchoate plan to murder Susan, but it's hard to know whether the dog should be understood as a manifestation of Frank's unconscious desires or as an external image of evil acting on him? Is the crime, the murder of Susan, human or diabolic in origin? Um, the murder of Susan is the only clear crime we get in this, in, in, in this play, although there's lots of um, assertion about criminality um, around Elizabeth Sawyer. So does the dog represent Frank's deepest desires, or does he prompt them? Now, the dog himself announces his mischief as if he is its primary agent, now for an early mischief and a sudden. The mind's about it now, 
One touch from me soon sets the body forward. But these lines are quite ambiguous in their attribution of agency. The suggestion of early mischief and one touch from me places the dog in control. But the phrase, the mind's about it now, suggests that Frank is already thinking on murder and just needs the physical nudge, the rub, to act out his thoughts. But then Frank's own response, then I'll ease all at once, tis done now what I ne'er thought on, tis done now what I ne'er thought on, denies that he's ever thought about it before. Although that phrase, tis done, tis done now what I ne'er thought on, tis done has that same kind of self-deluding elision, a pronoun without any reference to a noun, and even the pronoun clipped and abbreviated, that same elision that marks Macbeth's inability to name his own deed of murder, if it were done when tis done, twere well it were done quickly. A few lines later, Frank says that the devil did not prompt me. The devil did not prompt me. But it's a curious denial of a charge the play has not actually articulated, a preemptive defence that in the very act of denying raises the possibility that the devil did indeed prompt him. The dog is on stage, silent for this whole scene, never speaking to the characters except in a couple of lines of soliloquy before Frank and Susan enter. Clearly then, performance and what the actor does during that long, unchoreographed sequence make a significant difference to how we see the character. And in fact, dog is a character on stage a lot without anything obvious to do. And that would, I think that would make a big difference in production. Silently, after Susan's murder, he helps to tie Frank up to give him an apparent alibi, <coughs> an act of advanced motor coordination that is, again, spookily uncanine. But the dog's, the dog's next malign intervention into human affairs is also rather compromised. A villager called Anne Radcliffe enters, according to the stage direction, mad. She's issuing ranting speeches. Touch her. Sawyer tells the dog. And again, another physical encounter with the dog confirms, but cannot be said to cause Anne's mania. She's already mad when she comes in, uh, so uh, the, the, the dog doesn't really cause that, couldn't be said to cause that. Again, the question of agency. Does the dog do what Sawyer tells him? And of responsibility, what, what's made Anne mad, is muddled. So the dog who comes to Elizabeth Sawyer is both her own pet and an alien demon. That word for a witch's animal consort, a familiar, captures some of the ambiguities. Um, a familiar is uh, deeply uncanny in Freud's uh, uh, numerous senses of that word. Like the play itself, then, Dog is both domestic and supernatural. And he's the one figure who operates within both plots, the bigamy one of Frank Thorny, Susan and Winifred, and the witchcraft one of Elizabeth Sawyer. So one way is to see him is, of course, as the inconsistent product of multiple authorship. But another is to see him as the play's most inventive symbol of its contradictory impulses towards the ordinary and mundane on the one hand and the supernatural and extraordinary on the other. Now, since the dog, independ uh, since the dog operates independently of Elizabeth Sawyer, it seems as if she is acted on rather than acting. Her agency, as I've already said, is to inhabit the role that is forced on her by the community. 
The dog preys on her while she is cursing and wishing revenge on her neighbours. This confirms the perverse allegiance between the diabolic and the community. Both the diabolic and the, the communal want to claim Elizabeth Sawyer as a witch, so she has little choice but to accede. It's as if the production of the witch <coughs> occurs at the point of convergence between social scapegoating and demonic possession. It's a human as much as it's a devilish construction. So the muddle of, about the dog is, as I've suggested, a version of similar questions about Elizabeth Sawyer herself. Let's look at her opening soliloquy. Uh, at the beginning of the second act, she enters gathering firewood. And her speech identifies that she is the victim of communal accusation. We've got the speech right from the beginning, so she's, all, she's talking about something which has already happened. And why on me? Why should the envious world throw all their scandalous malice upon me? Because I am poor, deformed and ignorant, and like some bow buckled and bent together by some more strong in mischiefs than myself. Must I for that be made a common sink for all the filth and rubbish of men's tongues to fall and run into? Some call me witch, and being ignorant of myself, they go about to teach me how to be one, urging that my bad tongue, by their bad usage made so, forspeaks their cattle, doth bewitch their corn, themselves, their servants, and their babes at nurse, this they enforce upon me, and in part make me to credit it. She adds, "'Tis all one to be a witch as to be counted one. "'Tis all one to be a witch as to be counted one." And, he, and this is identified as the response which seems to make her vulnerable to demonic intervention. As we hear later in the play, "'Thou art never so distant from an evil spirit, "'but that thy oaths, curses and blasphemies pull him to thine elbow. "'Thou canst never tell a lie but that a devil is within hearing it. "'Thy evil purposes are ever haunted.'" The devil is always on the prowl, the suggestion is, always alert to moments of weakness. Now, the role of the community is, I think, very important for this play, as its title suggests. Edmonton may actually be more important than which in the two nouns that the title uh, raises. Edmonton was then a small village to the northeast of early modern London. In the play, it's a realised rural community with farmers, Morris dancers, social stratification and a clear sense that everyone knows everybody else's business. It's quite the opposite then of that giddy anonymity I talked about in relation to The Alchemist, the London play, uh, a couple of weeks ago. But Edmonton is no rural idyll. It's a hotbed of human wickedness, fornication, lying, bigamy, murder, the framing of innocent men. Alongside, or before, it is supernatural. Witchcraft, then, is only one of the crimes that are committed there. It's hard to make witchcraft the cause or even fully the symbolic expression of this range of criminality. So the play's title links it with other domestic tragedies of provincial places. There's something important about the domestic, that domestic tragedies don't take place in London. And we've already talked a bit in this series about what London stands for in clever, uh, witty, um, kind of fast-paced comedies like The Alchemist and Chase Made in Cheapside. 
these are these domestic tragedies like a Yorkshire tragedy or Arden of Faversham or the Witch of Edmonton are depictions of small town rural life from a position of metropolitan and sceptical authority. So these are metro these are plays for a metropolitan audience, which already has perhaps um, a particular view of the countryside or of um, the provincial. Sawyer herself identifies that she is, quote, a common sink for all the rubbish, filth and rubbish of men's tongues to fall and run into. The very definition, we might think, of a social scapegoat, figured in terms of the rudimentary sewage systems of early modern living. She talks about herself as a receptacle for the filth of others, not, a not, not someone who generates that filth. But if in the play, then, Sawyer comes to serve as the focus for communal discontents, she can hardly be blamed as their originator. Even as the play begins, the head of this closely realised and stratified rural society, Sir Arthur Clarington, is engaged in an in adulterous relationship with his servant Winifred. As we've seen, she's pregnant with his child as the play begins. And he ultimately undergoes really only very mild punishment for that, for the crime which uh, already shapes uh, and distorts social relationships in the play. Our knowledge of this makes the scene that we'll look at in a minute when he denounces Sawyer as a witch rather morally compromised. But there are other features of rural life that the play wants to bring out. It's difficult. It's financially precarious. The thorny family troubles are echoed in the, in the farmers' worries about their livestock. Witchcraft provides a ready excuse for small but crucial mishaps and problems and Radcliffe's mental health, the burning thatch. These are real issues for the play community, but they are inexplicable ones. Identifying Sawyer as a witch makes a kind of irrational rationality come to the exigencies of daily life. Now, I think the play definitely has it both ways, then, on the contemporary debate about witchcraft. And perhaps in doing so, it captures the mood of its time. By presenting Elizabeth Sawyer's witchcraft as, in part, the construct of a superstitious community... The play subscribes to the learned scepticism which was beginning to understand the accusation of witchcraft as social or psychological rather than demonic. But in its deployment of the panoply of witchcraft tropes, including the blood bargain made stageworthy by Dr Faustus and I think the scene of the dog suckling, the play can also indulge its audience in the theatrical enjoyment of scenes of possession and diabolically inspired evil. It's Halloween-y in that way, rather than frightening. This dramatic fashion, which has been dubbed by Diane Perkins the Jacobean witch vogue, has something to do with James I's <coughs> own changing fascination with witchcraft. A witch, the, the Witch of Edmonton was performed at court in Christmas, at Christmas 1621, a feature of its performance history which I think should challenge some of our social assumptions about so-called domestic tragedy. But there's an interesting moment that I think must be directed to this particular audience. Elizabeth Sawyer acknowledges before the justice that she is a witch, but she then counters quickly who is not, citing examples from sophisticated city living of different kinds of socially sanctioned enchantment. She gives a long sequence of satirical attacks on the wealthy which have no real relevance to the case at hand, but may have quite a lot of relevance to the audience watching. What are your painted things in Prince's Court, she says, upon whose eyelids lust sits blowing fires? 
Lawyers and merchants are credited with the power to enchant and transform their clients. Shopkeepers, by enchantments, can whole lordships change to trunks of rich attire. Something about that uh, point about consumption that we've had in previous lectures. City wenches can turn their husbands' wares, whole standing shops of wares, to sumptuous tables, gardens of stolen sin. And Sawyer turns her moral crusade closer to home, asking Sir Arthur, when he accuses her of witchcraft, dare any swear I ever tempted maiden with golden hooks flung at her chastity to come and lose her honour, and being lost to pay not a denier for it. Sawyer's sustained attempt to call out men witches as a feature of uh, society more generally serves to weaken the immediate case against her. So this is a satiric vision directly, uh, clearly directed to the audience in London and specifically to courtly audiences rather more than it is to the Edmonton accusers within the play. That moment is significant for other reasons too. Some critics have assumed that the play presents a vision of witchcraft in which its audiences would easily believe. They've been too ready, I think, to think that the fact that there were lots of witchcraft plays meant that people believed them. Um, just as if you were to look back at the, um, uh, if you were to look back at the cultural productions of the early 21st century and think that everybody believed in vampires, it may be that the moments of seriousness in, in the play are not a consistently held position. Just as performance renders dog simultaneously ridiculous and uncanny. A new area of critical interest, I think, Renaissance animal studies, the ethical preoccupation with the interchange between the human and animal worlds, might be a really helpful way to investigate this breached boundary. Uh, critical work I, I would recommend would be by Erica Fudge or Karen Raber here. The scene in which Mother Sawyer suckles the dog is the play's ultimate representation of that perversely blurred human or animal boundary. Urged by the justice to mend her life and pray, Elizabeth Sawyer turns instead to dog for comfort. My dear tomboy, welcome. I am torn in pieces by a pack of curs clapped all upon me, and for want of thee. Comfort me. Thou shalt have the teat anon. The most desired proof of witchcraft in all the early modern trials was the spectacle of the familiar and the witch in some kind of bodily congress. And if this promised spectacle can divert us from something perhaps more important about this speech, Sawyer describes her village accusers as curs, as dogs. Human behaviour is compromised both socially and demonically. Her accusers have failed to be fully human, uh, just, as her, uh, just as dog has. Stand on thy hind legs up, Sawyer tells dog perhaps interestingly implying that most of his stage locomotion has been on all fours. Let's tickle. The dog's replies here in this scene begin with bow wow, for this is the first time he starts to talk like a dog, that's to say. Almost as if just as Sawyer plays and thereby becomes the witch, he is now playing the role of dog. The play then gives us a deeply human of the cultural work of supernatural belief in a small community. At the end of The Witch of Edmonton, there is some forgiveness for what has passed. The execution of Sawyer, it seems, serves to make her into Edmonton's final scapegoat and enables other aspects of the play uh, to be reconciled. 
Frank accepts his punishment. On, on, tis just that law should purge the guilt of blood and lust. The murdered Susan's father, Carter, accepts Winifred, Susan's rival wife, into their family, acknowledging, I do not think but she's a good wench and hath had wrong as well as we. That sense that everybody has had wrong, hath had wrong as well as we. And the witch herself confesses, bear witness, I repent all former evil. There is no damned conjurer like the devil. Very easy rhyme between evil and the devil seems to suggest a kind of patness to that moment. By playing her part so fully, Elizabeth Sawyer appears to have purged the community's social tensions. She has fully become the role we saw her rehearsing earlier in the day. Join friends in sorrow, the justice tells the battered citizens of Edmonton. Join friends in sorrow, make of all the best. Harm's past can be lamented, not redressed. A review of Jesse Berger's 2011 production for the Red Bull Theatre in New York captures well the ambiguities of the play in performance. In the case of Elizabeth, we're not entirely sure what crime she is responsible for or the extent to which the townspeople turn her into the vengeful harpy she becomes. Guilt, it seems, is a grey zone in Edmonton. It's a radical conclusion given that the play's starting point is a pamphlet recording a witchcraft trial in which the protagonist was found guilty and executed for her crimes. It's quite a radical thing to produce out of that a play where the question of blame is so compromised. What the Witch of Edmonton seems to do is to question that verdict even as it enjoys the spectacle of Sawyer's witchcraft and in particular the play's most inventive character, Dog. By placing its supernatural story alongside a deeply human set of coercive relationships shaped by power and by money, the play opens out individual failings as a larger social critique. And I want to pick up some of that suggestion of critique in next week's lecture, which will be on John Ford's sensational incest tragedy, Tis Pity She's a Whore. See you then. <laughs>